welcome you all, and good to have everyone here, visitors and regulars alike. Um, we are in the third week of the Advent season where we're looking at Christ's first Advent with a view to his next Advent. And so I've been looking at Old Testament passages that prophesy about his coming. His Advent means his coming. So his first coming was in Bethlehem many years ago, and his next coming will be in glory when every eye will see him. And so this morning we're going to go back to Malachi chapter 3. So that's the last book of the Old Testament, the second to the last chapter of that book, Malachi chapter 3. <clears throat> Just before I read uh, from Malachi, I'd like to pray with you. So if you would, please join me in prayer. <clears throat> Precious Lord, the apostle, your apostle said, we are sorrowing, yet always rejoicing. And truly, Lord, that is so many times that our testimony. <clears throat> we think of the McGarry family today, and we think of our sister Nicole, who has finished her course and run her race and kept the faith. Thank you so much for her, for her memory. <clears throat> so, Lord, there's a sorrow in having to see one pass who was so loved, and yet, Lord, we are always rejoicing because we know she's with you, and we know that soon this veil of tears that we walk will be over, and you will make all things new. You are making all things new. So we praise you and bless you this morning for the hope that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, now as we consider again the prophecies of old that were made about the coming of your son. I just ask for your help. Lord, help me as I try to preach that I would make it clear. I do not want to cloud or muddy the waters in people's minds. I just ask for your help that I would make only make clearer the truth of your word. And I ask for myself and all of us as we hear your word today, Lord, that you would just help us, Holy Spirit of God, would you help shape us and change our thinking where it needs to be changed, encourage us where we need the encouragement. You know what we need, and so I'm just asking, would you please come and help us? <clears throat> In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So... Um, I said I would read out of Malachi chapter 3, but I'm actually going to back up to the last verse of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 17, and I'm going to read down through the first five verses of Malachi 3. <clears throat> you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? 
by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts." The word of the Lord. So just real quick, a little review, a little review of history here. God's people, the people of Israel, you know the story how he brought them out of Egypt under Moses. He brought them into the promised land under Joshua. <clears throat> but throughout the years and throughout the history, their history, they continued to turn away from the Lord. They turned to false gods. They turned to sinful practices. And God would send them prophets to correct them. Sometimes God would discipline them and send foreign armies to, uh, to attack them. <clears throat> but after many, many years... Uh, of this, these patterns, God warned through the prophets that if you continue to rebel, I'm going to send a foreign army. They will ransack your land and take you as POWs into a foreign country. And that's exactly what happened in the Babylonian exile. The, Babylon, the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C., Uh, sacked Jerusalem and um, destroyed the temples, the temple and the walls and the buildings. And the Jews were captive in Babylon for about 70 years. This is where the story of Daniel comes from. Um, Ezekiel was a prophet during that time in captivity. But then the Lord, after 70 years, the Lord miraculously brings his people back to the land. He raises up a foreign king named Cyrus, king of Persia, who the Persians ended up taking over the Babylonian empire uh, as the years went by. And Cyrus, this pagan king from Persia, said one day, you know what, all the Jews in my land... If you want to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild your temple, go for it. And you know what? Our government's going to pay for it. 
And uh, you can read about this, by the way, in the prophets uh, of Isaiah. Uh, but so God brought his people back to the land under the leadership of Ezra, of Nehemiah, of Zerubbabel. And you can read about those, those people in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. He brings them back to the land and they begin to rebuild. They rebuilt the city walls in like 50 some days, according to Nehemiah, because God gave the people a mind to work. And remember, they had enemies that were threatening to attack them. So the guys would, would be laying bricks and blocks on the city wall with a, with a spear in one hand and a, uh, a mortar trowel in the other hand. <laughs> And so they're laying the blocks of this city wall, and they were able to get the city wall built. They rebuilt the temple. And you'd think, okay, now, after all this, God's people would live holy lives and maintain pure worship before him. <clears throat> but you know, Malachi writes about 100 years after that coming back from captivity. Malachi's the last of the prophets until John the Baptist comes 400 years later. <clears throat> and Malachi writes at a time when God's people have fallen back into sinful practices. And he addresses several things. Uh, you guys disregard me. You dishonor my name. This is in chapter 1, and they say, well, how have we dishonored your name? The whole book can be structured over, like there's six times when God makes an accusation, like this is a problem, and the people respond like, well, how have we done that, or how are we guilty of that? And then God comes back and answers them, and uh, the first four of those disputes are in the first two chapters, and then the, the, the last two are here in chapter 3, but... God says, you dishonor my name. Well, how have we dishonored your name? Will you bring blind and lame sacrifices to, to my altar? And remember, God always told his people in the Old Testament, you bring spotless lambs, you bring pure sacrifices to me. And the people were bringing like their rejects. Like, you know, if they had a lamb with a broken leg or a blemished animal, they would bring that. And it indicated a half-hearted attitude, a lukewarm attitude toward their God. And God said, try offering that kind of a sacrifice to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? And uh, of course, that's a rhetorical question. And God, it's a, it's a, God is saying, of course not. And then God, in chapter 2, he addresses the priests. You priests who should be teaching people the righteousness and holiness you have You've taught people falsehood. And I don't know all that was going on in Malachi's day with the priests, but they were becoming wicked as well. And then in chapter 2, right before this last verse of chapter 2 that I started with this morning, God rebukes them for their rampant divorce rates. He said, you guys have not been faithful to the wife of your covenant. You have mistreated and not loved your wives and you have divorced them. And uh, <clears throat> so there was a lot of sin in the land. And then as we come to 
what I just read this morning, chapter 2, verse 17, he says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying this, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Does that sound familiar? It doesn't matter what you do. God loves you just the way you are. He affirms you in your lifestyle or your choices. I just want to say this. God does love you just the way you are. But he hates your sin. And he hates mine because he knows that that sin in our lives is the thing that will keep us from him forever. And if he did not hate our sin, he would not love us. God hates sin. All sin. And I'm so glad he does. I'm so glad he does. Because he is righteous and holy. But he says, you've wearied me with your words by saying things like this. Everybody who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. As if, as if to say it doesn't matter how you live. That's what, that was what was being propagated in Malachi's day. And he says, or by asking this question, and this is a rhetorical question at the very end of chapter 2, where is the God of justice? doesn't matter if you live. There's no consequences for how people live. Where is the God of justice? And God's answer in chapter 3 is an answer to that last question. Behold, in Hebrew, hine, look. Watch this. I am sending my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And I think he's talking there about John the Baptist, who would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. If you look over at the very end of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 5, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Jesus said John the Baptist was Elijah if they would have received him. He was the Elijah to come. So chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. <clears throat> Remember, John the Baptist came saying, I am he who prepares the way of the Lord. And then, chapter 3, still verse 1, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? So he's talking about the Messiah that's going to come in Malachi's day. The Messiah, the Lord, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming. To answer your question, where is the God of justice? Here he comes. You remember when Jesus came? He, he says, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap or launderer's soap, which has a caustic nature to it that, that 
drives away the stains and the, the refiner's fire that turns up the heat and burns away the dross on the gold or the silver. That's what he's going to be like when he comes. When he comes, uh, he will suddenly come to his temple. Do you remember when Jesus came, when he first started his earthly ministry, he went into the temple in Jerusalem? Do you remember what he did? He overturned the money changers' tables. The Jewish people had set up in the outer court of the Gentiles, they had set up these tables where people could buy sacrifices if they were coming from a distance. And they had, in disregard for the Gentiles, they had set these, this, this marketplace up in the outer courtyard of the Gentiles, and Jesus is so angry he overturns their tables. In fact, one of the Gospels says that he made a whip and drove them out. I, I don't know if he's like cracking the whip on them um, or if he just cracked the whip like Indiana Jones. You know, if he, I don't know. But he drove them out in holy zeal. He overturned the money changers' tables and he said, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, all the nations, and you have turned it into a robber's den. Jesus was passionate that the true God, the God of Israel, would be able to be worshipped by not just Jews, but by foreigners. He came like a refiner's fire, purifying God's people, purifying the temple and purifying God's people. <clears throat> um, the, the chapter, verse 2 says, Who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? That's a rhetorical question as if to say, Nobody. As if to say the answer is nobody. And it reminds me of Psalm 130, verse, uh, the first, just listen to the first f four verses of Psalm 130. Out of, this is a psalm of a, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Lord, if you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you so that you may be feared. What the psalm writer is saying is, if you were to count all, my, all of our sins, none of us have a chance. But there's forgiveness with you so that you may be, so that you may be feared. You may be reverenced and treasured and adored. And that the question in Malachi, when he comes, who can stand when he appears? Nobody could stand unless, he's, unless there's forgiveness with God, unless there's a hope with this one whose coming would be like a refiner's fire. You know what? You know what just puzzles me? Every once in a while it puzzles me. Jesus was, he had harsh words for religious guys like me, for the the Pharisees and the religious leaders, he had harsh words for religious hypocrites. But the hookers and the crooks flocked to him. Now, not all the prostitutes, 
Not all the tax collectors, but lots of them did. That tells me, even though he was like a refiner's fire, he called a spade a spade and he didn't sweep people's sin under the rug, yet there was something about Jesus that gave sinners like me hope. So they came to him. They hung out with him. Oh, isn't that, isn't that a beautiful picture? If we could bring that holy zeal together with compassion and hope for sinners. That's the way Jesus was. He's like a refiner's fire, burning away impurities in his people. Notice what it goes on to say. He is like a refiner's fire, like launderer's soap. He will sit, verse 3, he will sit like a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they'll bring, an, they'll bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. <clears throat> you know, when I think of this picture, I, you know what a refiner is. You kind of have to think back, like in the pioneer days. When I read this verse, my mind goes to Indonesia years ago when some of us went to Indonesia to visit some missionaries. I'll never forget this. We were, this is where the Gervasis live. It's in a little village called Parobut, and I think I've told this story probably a bunch of times. I'm going to tell it again. But we're miles away from civilization they, a helicopter from the Swiss mission over there somewhere had delivered parts of this diesel tractor to this remote village over a period of time. Whenever they were in the area and the helicopter was in the area, they would deliver these parts of this diesel tractor. And these, these missionaries had people come that knew about tractors and they put the thing together. And Wayne Huff, who was good with equipment, was over there with us, and he was driving that thing, trying to make an airstrip for the, a landing strip for, for aircraft to come in to, to be able to service the missionaries, because the closest landing strip was four miles down the mountain, and you had to clear the cows away and move the soccer goalposts to land, and you're, I'll never forget landing on that airstrip. Um, cow pies are flying up, flying up on the windshield of the plane, and uh, this is remote. This is very remote. So four miles up the mountain, that's where this little village is. That's where they were trying to build an airstrip, and they had these pieces of this tractor. Wayne was working with the tractor, and a piece of the tractor broke. Like, I'm talking heavy steel. And he goes, well, we got a problem. And Paul said, well, I'll tell you what. Let's go to so-and-so down in the, over in the village. And he took this, this broken steel to this old guy that just had, I don't know what, he, he didn't have anything on top, but just something, I think pants on the bottom and maybe flip-flops. Everybody wears flip-flops over there. And um, we brought it to the guy, and he had this fire of hot coals at the, on the ground, and right next to it, there was, he had built out of wood these two things that looked like butter churns. And he had a, like a teenage boy there standing there going like this with the what looked like butter churns. They were actually billows. They were air. They were pushing air down those wooden cylinders out a little opening in the bottom. And it was blowing forced air over this hot fire of coals. And 
he had a couple of big rocks and a hammer. And he took that steel and melted it down and put it back together and beat it together and boom, tractor's going again. And I just couldn't believe that. It was like, wow. I mean, they don't even have Ace Hardware over here. <laughs> but they don't need Ace Hardware. And that's when I, when I think about this, he will sit like a refiner of silver and gold. I think of a heat that has air blowing over it and getting really hot to burn away the impurities of that precious metal. But look at what it says in this, this passage. He will sit as a refiner. This is verse 3. He will sit like a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing as it, to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Isn't that beautiful? Even though Jesus would come and he would be holy zeal on fire, yet his mission was to purify his people. It says the sons of Levi, I think especially, because in chapter 2 he was addressing the priests as the ones who were, their lives were full of sin and impurities. And when the Messiah comes, he says he's going to purify them. He's going to turn up the heat. Now, <clears throat> This is a Christmas message. How, how will he do it? How, how will he do it? It says in verse 5, Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So he's addressing all these sins that were in his people in those days. And he's saying, I'm going to witness against you. And those who would repent and humble themselves before him, he would forgive and he would purify. And those who would not are going to be burned up. How do we find this being fulfilled in Jesus' first advent? I mentioned to you the overturning of the money changers' tables. Uh, he was like a refiner's fire in the way that he encountered phony religion and hypocrisy. But how does Jesus do that for us today? How is this fulfilled in between the advents? Okay, we have the first advent prophesied here. But we were waiting for the next advent. How is he doing that for us now, for his people now? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> listen to these words. This comes out, we're getting ready to have communion here in a few moments. We're going to share the Lord's table. And a lot of times... Uh, I will read this before communion, but this comes out of 1 Corinthians 11. This is the Apostle Paul talking to the Corinthian church about the Lord's Supper. So listen to these words. For I received from the... This is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 23. 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in or by means of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, truly we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I will give directions when I come. So what the Apostle Paul is saying to the, ch the church in Corinth was, this is why you guys come together, they, they would have like their fellowship dinners, and then they would have communion, the Lord's table, at the end of that time. And he says, you have some people that are just disregarding each other, some are drunk, at the Lord's table, and some are go, go away hungry. Be considerate of one another. Don't just come lightly to the table of the Lord and don't think lightly about your relationships with one another. Because when you do, you are eating and drinking judgment on yourself. And he said, that's why some of you are weak. That is why many of you are weak and sick and some have died. This is, that's 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. And he's saying, we are be, you're being judged by God. That's God drawing near to you like a refiner's fire and judging your sinful attitudes. So weakness, sickness, death. Sometimes Jesus kills his people. Now the good news is, uh, he does it out of discipline. It says right here, we're, when we are, I just read it, but I'll, I'll read it again. If we judged ourselves truly, then we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So when Jesus causes his children to either be weak or sick or to die prematurely because of their sinful attitudes, He's disciplining them. He's disciplining them. That doesn't mean he's condemning us. He's dis and so I think this is one of the ways between the Advents that the Lord comes like a refiner's fire for his people. Sometimes he allows bodily sickness into our lives to purify us. That's why when we pray for each other, when we have cancer or when we have other things, when we, when we pray... I always think it's good to pray, Lord, whatever 
other things you want to do in my life through this sickness, please sanctify the sickness to me to do, to do good to my soul. And then please heal me bodily too. Uh, I think that's a good prayer, but way more important are the issues of the soul, right? But sometimes the Lord afflicts, our, afflicts us bodily, I think like he mentions here in 1 Corinthians 11, as, a, as an act of judgment. How else does the Lord want to be like a refiner's fire? In our conscience, we should judge ourselves. We should say, Lord, forgive me and repent. If we know any known sin, we should, we should abandon it and run back to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me, please. That's what he says, if we would judge ourselves. Um, so there's a, I believe that the Holy Spirit of God works like a refiner's fire. The Holy Spirit of Jesus works like a refiner's fire on our conscience. Um, so we should be zealous and repent, like Jesus told the lukewarm people in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. <clears throat> How will he fulfill this when he comes again? How is Jesus going to fulfill Malachi 3 when he comes again? Well, when he comes again, he's going to come in glory and in fiery radiance with all God's holy angels with him. And everything left in us that is sinful will be burned up. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, nobody can lay another foundation than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, how you build on that foundation, you got to be careful. Some build with gold, silver, precious stones. Some build with wood, hay, and stubble. Every man's work will be exposed by fire, it says. And if, if, you've, if you've taken Jesus and you've lived a lackadaisical life, the works that you've done will be burned up. But whatever work you've done in faith, even if it's a cup of cold water given in the name of a disciple, it will not lose its reward. So... When Jesus comes again at that last day, he will be like a refiner's fire in the sense that he will totally burn away in us all that remains of wickedness. And those who are not his will be thrown in the lake of fire. So, what are we supposed to take? In conclusion, what should we think about a passage like this? I would say, God, help us to embrace this refining. Help us to be quick to repent of our sins and turn back to you. As he goes on to say at the end of this chapter in Malachi 3, 16 through 18, help us, Lord, to encourage each other to fear the Lord in all of life. Just listen to these words in Malachi 3, 16 through 18, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them like a man spares his son who serves him. 
then once more you will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. So we need to encourage each other to serve the Lord in gladness and in holy fear and in purity, in purity. And then I'll say one other thing as I close. Um, Jesus has ordained suffering for his people in this, between the two advents. On the other side of the final advent, there will be no more suffering. But here, he has planned suffering to be a part of the recipe for us to be purified. <clears throat> I'll just read a passage in closing out of 1 Peter 4, starting at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I just read that to say, Peter puts together suffering and judgment beginning at the house of God. He puts them together. So he's saying, don't be surprised when the suffering, the fiery trial comes on you as though something strange were happening. The refiner's fire. He's purifying his church. One of these days we're going to stand before him without any impurities. You know, you know, here in this place we live, between the two advents, all of our highest joys are tainted, aren't they? There's always kind of a letdown. It's because we live in a sinful world and we still have remaining sin within us. Can you imagine the day when Jesus comes and burns away all the sin? Then the joy will be untainted. It will be released to, be, to its full potential. Amen. Amen. And that's what we look forward to. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are like a refiner's fire. But I thank you, Lord, that your fire is not aimed at destroying us, but to refine us and to purify us and to make us pure and spotless, like pure gold. And someday you'll finish that job. Lord, help us to cooperate with you in the meantime. Help us, Lord, 
to be quick to repent of our sins, to keep a clear conscience before you, and to help each other do that. And Lord, when suffering comes, help us to see it as judgment beginning at the household of God. And help us, Lord, to see that we're suffering according to the will of God so we can entrust ourselves to a faithful creator while doing good things that please you. Lord, now I just ask that you would visit us with your presence, your peace, your power. Lord, as we gather now around your table, I just ask that you would meet with us. Lord, if there's any here that feel hopeless or, or outside of Christ, I pray that they would just run to you, throw themselves on the mercy of the refining fire forgiving rescuer. I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.